Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. No one has ever won five U.S. Open golf championships. Or has there been one? The PGA Championship was played in 1941, and so was the Masters. The Open Championship was canceled for a second straight year, and the USGA decided to cancel the U.S. Open. Instead, they put on a different tournament. The venue was changed. But almost everything else stayed the same. Heck, the winner even got a champion's medal. How controversial is this topic? Well, the tournament has basically been wiped away from the record books. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore this topic as we discuss the 1941 Hail America National Open. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 121, the Hail America National Open. So, can a golf tournament be a forgotten hero? It's an interesting question. In the sense of how I am approaching this topic, the answer, in my humble opinion, is a resounding Y-E-S. You see... The U.S. had become engaged in World War II and the USGA decided it was time to tone everything down and cancel the U.S. Open. No one has an issue with that. However, the head-scratcher here is this. While the USGA canceled the tournament, it opted to put on a different tournament called the Hail America National Open. Almost everything about the Hail America mirrored a U.S. Open. There was qualifying. Big names played, such as Hogan and Nelson and Jimmy DeMerit, even Bobby Jones. The venue was changed from Interlochen in Minnesota to Ridgemore Country Club just outside of Chicago. Now, certainly... Ridgemore did not play as hard as Interlochen. That's really where the differences ended. Oh, the U.S. Open Championship trophy was not awarded, but a medal replicating the medal for winning the U.S. Open was handed out. So while Willie Anderson, Bobby Jones, and Jack Nicklaus have each won the U.S. Open a record four times, The question many golf fans have is this. Ben Hogan also won it a record four times. 1948, 1950, 1951, and he won it the fourth time in his incredible run in 1953. But should Hogan top the list with five U.S. Open victories because He also won the Hail America in 1941. 
Joining me today on Sports Forgotten Heroes to discuss the Hail America National Open and whether or not it should be counted as a U.S. Open is Peter May, who is covering the 2022 U.S. Open for the New York Times. Peter is also the author of the book, The Open Question. This book explores the topic, answers questions, and proposes new questions about this forgotten tournament that I challenge everyone listening today to go ahead and research. You will find so little about it. It's as if the USGA doesn't want you to know anything more about the Hail America National Open. Okay, as always, before we start the show, I want to let you all know that Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member of the Sports History Network. This is a conglomerate of many different types of sports history podcasts. Check it out. There's something for everyone at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Also, please visit SportsFH.com. Here, I have more information about the forgotten heroes I talk about. Again, that's sportsfh.com. You can also see a calendar of upcoming episodes. And please send me an email and let me know how I'm doing. Suggest a topic for a future podcast or submit a question. Send your email to sportsfh.info at gmail.com. That's sportsfh.info at gmail.com. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to Sports Forgotten Heroes and to give the podcast a like. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes and look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. As always, thanks for all of your support. Okay, let's get into today's show with my guest, Peter May. And joining me again on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Peter May. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be on it again with you, Warren. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I enjoyed our discussion about Lloyd Mangrum and really looking forward to this discussion It's such an interesting topic, the Hail America National Open. So let's start with this. Set it up for us. What was going on at the time and why the USGA decided to cancel the U.S. Open while other sports such as baseball and football kept playing? The Masters was played. The PGA was played. Other PGA events were played. Why did the USGA choose to cancel the 1942 U.S. Open? Well, uh, you sort of answered my question there when you talked, because golf was um, one of the sports that did continue uh, after Pearl Harbor. But the USGA was sort of acting on um, historical principle. They had done the same thing in 1917 when the U.S. entered World War One and canceled their events at that point. And I just, in doing the research for this book, I just, uh, I just came across the the idea that this, there was never a question that they were not going to cancel these things if they were going to devote whatever resources they could get uh, from the golf tournaments that they were involved in to the war effort, uh, but they were not going to be holding. Uh, they only had four tournaments at the time. Mm-hmm. They were not going to be holding any of their four tournaments. I think they have like 19 now or something. Yeah, they it's, do have like, a lot. Yeah, uh, but they only had four in 1941 and 1942. So they, they canceled them then, and then they set about uh, – trying to help out the war effort in whatever way they could. But you're absolutely right. They were the outliers in that regard in golf in 1942. The Masters held its tournament. It did not hold them in 43, 44, or 45, but it did hold one in 42. Uh, the PGA held one in 42. They had like limited tournaments going forward through the war. 
I think there were only five PGA tournaments in 43. So, um, you know, they, they, I think also the USGA was sort of concerned about the fact that if they held the tournament, what would it look like? Um, it was in June, so that you're talking six months down the road. Mm-hmm. How many guys would be able to play? You know, so they were they were worried about the look, but mostly I think they did it because they had done it in 1917 and they thought it was the right thing to do. Mm. How did the players react? Were they in favor of calling off the tournament? Well, not really, but the players, you know, they they liked the idea of the National Open, but they they were playing regularly every week in 1942. Um, so it what the USGA did, I mean, the USGA had one tournament a year that they, uh, that they held for professionals. So it wasn't a big deal that they called off the open. And as soon as they called off the open, they produced this, you know, replacement <laughs> tournament in Chicago, uh, which offered us open type money in, in, in war bonds and stuff like that. So the players, I don't think were affected one way or the other by this. They, they had been playing, right through uh, the year on a regular schedule. Yeah, it was really strange because instead of playing the U.S. Open, a new tournament was created to fill the void, the Hell America Open. And um, it's just just this funny thing. All right, we're not going to call it the U.S. Open. We're going to call it the Hell America Open. Right. And, um, right. you know, maybe it's because, I don't know, I mean, today you would say, well, you can't maybe get the international players over here, but I don't know if it was as big a deal, um, and I don't want to minimize the amount of international players that might have played back in 1942, but, um, you know, there weren't as many that would have that that played in the U.S. Open at that time than as there are today. So it's a really a strange thing. Where was the U.S. Open supposed to have been played? The U.S. Open had been awarded um, to inter- Interlochen uh, Country Club or Golf Club in, in Southside Minneapolis, and it, uh, it it's part in history is that it was the site of the U.S. Open in 1930 when Bobby Jones. Uh, won his Grand Slam, and it was the third leg of the four uh, that he won. And it was uh, it had gotten great reviews uh, in 1930 for everything, you know, of course, you know, setting up the press coverage, everything. And it was well prepared to host the 42 Open. Their general manager and, and tournament people had gone down to Colonial Country Club in Texas, which was the site of the 41 Open, and just to kind of get the, you know, how do you do it and what's good and what's bad, what works, what doesn't work. So they were fully prepared to host it. And the irony is, is that they, you know, I've done it in January of 1942, they were told, uh uh-uh, uh, no, no tournament this year. But they were given a chance uh, to have the tournament once. Uh, the USGA decided to resume them and eventually they just decided they didn't want to do it. So they never had another U S open there. They've had other tournaments there, but they've not had a U.S. Open. Right. So interlocking never got the U S open back. And I'm guessing that was by their choice. They're being. Yes, it was. So, and, and just to confirm again, the USGA is the organization that ran the Hail America Open, correct? They were they were they were one of the three sponsors of the tournament. Yes. So All right. So where where did the Hail America Open get played? It was played in Chicago at a fairly nondescript golf course called Ridgemore Country Club. Uh, which never hosted a USGA, USGA event to that point and never has hosted one since, but stepped up uh, in the middle of the war and said, we can do it, mainly because the people that were 
promoting the Hail America and wanted to play the Hail America wanted, were Chicago guys. Uh, the USGA briefly, but not really all that seriously, thought about playing the Hail America at Interlock in, in 1942. Um, but uh, the, the, the people who were behind the scenes of the Hail America who wanted to stage this tournament argued successfully that it should be in Chicago uh, because Chicago was a major, you know, communication center. It was a major transportation center. It would be easier for people to get in and get out of Chicago. Because again, remember we're at war now. So a lot of things that you took for granted that in June of 1941, were not going to be available in June of 1942. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how was the tournament organized? Who was eligible to play? And, and what differences uh, as far as organizing the tournament, um, were there differences from, say, organizing a U.S. Open? There were, but there were more similarities than there were differences, I think, which is why, um, to this day, um, people, uh, you know, especially Ben Hogan, uh, people think that it should have been counted as a real U.S. Open. It was divided into three sections. The USGA ran the tournament uh, according to the way the USGA wanted to run it. The PGA was another sponsor. Their goal uh, was to just supply the manpower. So Fred Corcoran, who was the head of the PGA tournament uh, committee at the time, advised all his pros to play in it and made sure that the week that uh, the the uh, Hail America was going to be held, which was the same week as the canceled U.S. Open, was open for the players to play in it. And the Chicago District Golf Association, which was the mover and shaker to get the tournament in Chicago, uh, they were the ones that did the tickets and the logistics and all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that, um, you know, it's, it's like the sausage mm. being made. You know, you don't want to know about it, Right. But the USGA ran the tournament. They set up qualifying. They set up exemptions. Uh, and it, they sort of ran it like a U.S. Open, which is why uh, some people think that it, it should have counted as a U.S. Open, because how many tournaments do you have uh, two rounds of qualifying, local and sectional qualifying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, none, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> except, except the U.S. Right. Open. So... Um, so that's what happened, and they had, um, if I may just digress just for a second, the um, the day they announced this tournament was going to be held, The first one of the first people who said he would play in it was Bobby Jones, which was a huge boost mm -hmm. uh, to the tournament and to the tournament sponsors because this was 12 years after he retired. And Bobby Jones was immediately given an exemption to play in the tournament, Uh Duh. <laughs> but Bobby Jones, but Bobby Jones decided he would play the qualifying rounds anyway because just to get in shape and you know clean off the rust and all that stuff. And the amazing thing is, is that there were two rounds of qualifying, uh, five rounds in total, if I'm not mistaken, over the over the two rounds. Bobby Jones had the best cumulative score of anybody in the country. Wow. And this, this, this included a lot of pros who were playing every week and had not been exempted from the tournament. You know, guys like Jim Ferrier and people like that. And they had to qualify. And they did qualify, but nobody beat Bobby Jones's uh, scores over the two, two uh, qualifying things, which is amazing because he hadn't played competitively in 12 years. Right. And he was 40, I want to say 40 years old, and he... Uh, was going into the army immediately after the tournament ended, so uh, his mind wasn't fully on golf, and um, he was uh, he was it was it was an amazing story, and people thought that that might make him a factor in the tournament. He wasn't, uh, but uh, he lent his name and his prestige to the tournament, and that was a big thing because they raised a lot of money for the war mm -hmm. effort. So Jones winds up playing. What about? Other well-known golfers of the day, you know, Hogan, Nelson, Sneed, Lloyd Mangrum, Craig Wood. Did any of the well-known golfers from that time period skip the Hail America? 
Yes. Um, the field was pretty strong. The only ma- the only major player that didn't go in was Sneed, because uh, he had just been uh, inducted into the Navy or joined the Navy. I, get, I guess you joined the Navy, don't you? Um, so he was in. The, he had just gone into the Navy the month before the Hail America. They had the 1942 PGA in New Jersey, and Sneed had won that tournament. It, that back then it was match play. Uh, I think he beat uh, Joe Turniza, but he was going into the Navy. But I, I think from the research I did, it was pretty iffy as to whether Sneed could have gotten, a, you know, a service, mm-hmm. you know, pass to go play in the Hail America. I think he could have. I think everybody would have agreed that he would have been he would have been more useful to the war effort, raising money playing golf than you know going to Norfolk, Virginia, and you know hoisting cables or whatever we were doing <laughs> down there. So, but he did not play. But the most the top level players did play. And the thing you have to realize back then, Warren, is that it it was a very very uh, top heavy tour in terms of winners. It's not like it is today, where if a guy wins twice, you think it's like the greatest thing in the world. I mean, I think there were 15 tournaments prior to the Hail America in 1942. As I said, they played a regular schedule in 1942. Mm-hmm. There were 15 tournaments. And I think Hogan, Sneed, Nelson, and Mangrum won 11 of them. <laughs> so, and Hogan, Sneed, Hogan, Mangrum, and Nelson were all in the tournament, as was Craig Wood. You mentioned him, the defending champion. Uh, there were a couple of guys, you know, I like to say now, this, they were the Webb Simpsons of the mm. time, you know, mm-hmm. that didn't play. But the, the top-level players who more often than not won tournaments uh, were the guys that showed up, with the exception of Sam mm-hmm. Sneed. So... If all these guys, with the exception of Sneed, still came out to play, again, I have to ask, what was the point in canceling the U.S. Open? I, it's it's, yeah. it's hard to register. I know. I know. Um, I mean, I think one of the people who was pretty upset about that was Gene Sarazen, who had won a couple of U.S. Opens, but he was no longer really a a factor he, he he was more of a player in the 20s and the 30s but uh he he was very very opposed to the usga canceling the open he couldn't figure out why they did it you know you're going to play this tournament anyway when what what's the difference and you know but i think i think it just goes back to the organization's belief that uh in fact they use the phrase hollow when they cancel the tournament because they thought that the that the winner might in some way be besmirched by uh, a, a lack of you know competition or uh, inferior playing conditions or whatever it was they just didn't want to be there uh, during the war and the thing is nobody nobody worried about it in 43 or 44 or 45 but in 42 I mean I think there were enough tournaments there that it could have conceivably had it and then said, okay, we're done, but they mm. didn't. So we're, we're left with the hail America, which was in and of itself, a very competitive golf tournament with all the big Jimmy demerit. I forgot to mention him. He was there too. He, he almost won mm-hmm. the thing. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a, you know, it was a pretty good field for you know, the war. Yeah. So, so we're going to get to the tournament now, and and we're going to talk about this tournament because it, it is so darned interesting. Um, it was supposed to have been played, well, the U.S. Open was supposed to have been played at Interlock, and as we talked about, and instead they, they canceled the tournament, and they staged the Hail America at Ridgemore in Chicago. So... How challenging a course was Ridgemore? How did it compare to courses that had previously hosted a U.S. Open championship during that time period? Um, not it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a USGA Open championship course. I don't think anybody would uh, deny that. 
they did their best. One of the reasons they held the tournament there, as I mentioned earlier, was because of the centrality of Chicago. Uh, Ridgemore jumped up and said they'd do it. They had a couple of things going for them. They had public transportation out to the uh, out to the course, which meant a lot for the uh, spectators uh, so that they could get out there. And it was also a fenced in property so that they couldn't uh, have, you know, gate crashers and stuff like that. But um, it wasn't it wasn't a USGA, you know, it wasn't Medina or Olympia Fields or a number of courses in the Chicago area, which have hosted U.S. Opens. It wasn't that. Um, but they did their best. And um, the problem was, is that they didn't have the necessary, I want to say equipment and stuff like that. Because remember, pretty much everything that you needed to do to improve a golf course would probably be sent right to the warp office instead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, material, machinery, all that stuff. So they did what they could. They did the best they could. Um, For two days, the course was just absolutely hammered by the Mm -hmm. pros. Uh, Then the rain came, and instead of making it softer and easier, it made it harder for them. And at the end of the day, this is what I tell people when they say, well, should it count as a U.S. Open? I mean, that's not for me to decide. But at the end of the day, it produced a legitimate champion in Ben Hogan. And um, I don't know how uh, how you can debate that. I mean, he he won the tournament. He won it over some good players. And whether it's a U.S. Open or not, I, you know, the, I think the fallback is just the course. It just wasn't. You know, it wasn't open line. It wasn't any of the tough courses that the guys were used to playing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the scores reflected that. It was he Hogan won with, uh, I believe it was 17 under par, 271, which included a 62 in the second round. So um, I think that's, you know, the, that's the fallback. They're never going to change it. And I think they're going to say, well, it wasn't really a U.S. Open course. Yeah, I mean, and you talk about Hogan's 10 under 62 in the second round. What can you tell us about that round and how it compares to other low and record-breaking rounds in USGA history? Well, I can start by saying no one has ever shot a 62 uh, in, a, in a U.S. Open. Um, there's only been one 62 in any of the four major tournaments, and that was by the immortal Brandon Grace. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, but that round, he, Hogan was very disappointed after his opening round. He shot even par 72, uh, which was way down the leaderboard. The, the leaders had both the two leaders had shot 65s. And um, it was way down the leaderboard. He was very upset. When I did an interview with the Golf Channel for this book, uh, they asked me, what did I learn about Ben Hogan? And I said, well, I learned one thing. He, he whiffed a shot on the first round. And he actually did. He was on the 17th hole. He had a bad drive. He tried to kind of punch it out into the fairway left-handed, and he whiffed on the shot. He took a six. Wow. And which was a double bogey and finished with an even par 72. So he was not happy. And he came back the next day, two hours before his tea time, big surprise, right? And he started out birdie, birdie, eagle. <laughs> and he ended up with eight birdies and Eagle and the 10 under par 62, wow. uh, which believe it or not, was still not enough to uh, give him the second round lead. <laughs> so, buddy, but that was, that was quite around nobody. His playing partners at the, where I think Tommy armor and Jack Hutchison, they both were like marveled at the, that it's just the precision that he, he had on that day. I mean, everything, everything was working for him. What did he have to say about that round? And you mentioned, uh, 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 you know, his playing partners from the day. Um, What did his peers think about that round? (laughs) Well, Hogan himself, um, you know, it's funny when you read the coverage of the tournament, it's not like it is now, you know, they didn't bring the guys into the press room, talk about the round and, go over the shots and stuff like that. And the only meaningful quote that I could ever find from Hogan after that round was, well, if I, if I shoot 
62 the next two days, maybe I'll end up in the money. You know, that was <laughs> vintage, him vintage Hogan. Yeah. That's vintage Ben. That's, that, that's like his Jay Leno moment. Right. And, um, so, uh, that's about all I could, all I could find. Um, he did talk to Grantland Rice, I believe it was after the round. And he, again, this is typical Hogan. He shot a 62. He bemoaned the fact that he missed two putts where, that inside of 10 feet, which would have given him a 60. Um, and he putted very well in that round. And as you know about Hogan, uh, putting was never one of his favorite nah, things. No, he always he said that it even shouldn't be a part of the game. Yeah. <laughs> he he never practiced it. He always practiced hitting his irons and his woods. He didn't he rarely practice his putting. And he wasn't crazy about it. But he putted extremely well on this day. And... Uh, but when he got in, he said, yeah, you know, I missed two putts. I should have, I should have shot a 60. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. But that was, a, that was, it, and it remains. I mean, it, it's, it's, he had shot a 62, I think it was the year before in a tournament, but uh, there hadn't been many 62s on what was that, you know, a very fledgling PGA tour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the USGA runs i guess the playing side the core side of this tournament right ben goes out and he shoots a 10 under 62 why do you suppose this round gets such little recognition when talking about usga events heck it's barely a footnote that's why i wrote the book (laughs) Um, it's you're absolutely right i mean the tournament itself it got mentioned very briefly in the in the usga record books for a few years and then it got you know like the trotsky years in russia you know just got erased you know when and and, and no reference to them um and the same thing happened with the 62 and uh that's how i that's how i um i explain this in the book that's how i got uh, interested in this tournament. I had not uh, been aware of it until Dan Jenkins, who of course was Ben's friend, you know, one yeah. of the great golf writers and a very big Hogan guy had followed. I don't know. I think it was Justin Thomas or something was shooting six was, was a, looking like he was going to shoot a 63. Um, and one of the, I think it was at Aaron Hills. Um, and, uh, he he didn't, but Hogan said, you know, that, you know, you might think that's the record, but the real record is 62 that Hogan's shot in, in the 1942 open. And he thinks it's the record. And so do I, and that, it's good enough for him. It's good enough for me. <laughs> and I said, I, what are you talking about? I, I don't know about the 62. I've never heard of a 62. That was always Johnny Miller. 63 was, right. the, you know, the, yeah. And uh, so I did some research on it and, the funny thing is, is that a lot of people who I consider to be fairly knowledgeable about golf history had no recollection or no uh, understanding of this tournament and, and of what had happened. And so I thought, you know, that might be worth pursuing. And that's what that's what led to the book. And um, I really just had a blast with the research because it was so much of it was new to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Well, the first two rounds of the tournament, as you said, were pretty unusual for a USGA-run event. 49 players broke par. But in the third round, the scoring came down, and only 18 players broke par, including Ben, who shot a 69. In the fourth round, he shot a 68, and he wound up winning the Hell America by three strokes. Was he pretty consistent over those four days? And were there really any other players out there who could have challenged them or challenged him? Did anybody ever really stage a rally and threaten Hogan? Oh, for sure. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, he, he, even after the 62, he was not in the lead. Uh, and after three rounds, he was tied for the lead uh, with Mike Terneza Um who had opened with the 60, I think he shot 65, 66 his first two days, uh, which is unheard of in a U.S. Open. But the final day, it was, and I mentioned him earlier, Jimmy Demerit came, I think he was behind by 
two or three shots heading into the last round. Um, and he, by the, he, it was two shots because he buried the first two holes in the air. So he tied uh, the leaders. And back then they staggered tee times. It wasn't like, it's not like it is now where the leaders go off last and the best, and the next best go off after that. They staggered them. They staggered the group so the galleries could, you know, see everybody. And, um, and so Demerit went off before Hogan and Hogan went off before uh, Ternesa and Byron Nelson was the last one in. And so Demerit actually got to the point on the back nine where he had a three shot lead on the field. He had eagled the 13th hole, uh, an eagle two. He, he knocked in a wedge shot, I believe it was, and then he buried the next hole. So he was in great shape. And then he had three consecutive bogeys. Uh, and while he was making those bogeys, Hogan was picking up uh, birdies on two holes. It was basically a five-shot swing. And that was the end for Demerit. The, the writers at the time said that, yes, Hogan won it, but Demerit kind of you know, deserves credit for giving it mm-hmm, to him mm-hmm. because uh, he, he really he was in great shape after I won the 14 holes on Sunday, but he, he, he just couldn't close it. So, yes, to answer your question, Jimmy Demerit uh, really had the tournament in his grip and and lost it. And Hogan, you know, Hogan took advantage of it as Hogan did. He just he played very steady golf. He like you said, he shot sixty eight and um, ended up winning by you know a comfortable margin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, now the fun starts. <laughs> At this point in his career, 1942, Ben Hogan had not won an official major. What we call major right. tournaments, the Masters, right. the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, and the PGA Championship. Um, and, the P, you know, we wouldn't see Hogan win a major until I believe it was 1946 when he won the PGA. So where did the term major championship come from and when did it really become a thing? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's, it's something that, uh, you know, that the, that the PGA and the USGA, they need to take like five really, really smart golf people and put them in a room and say, you got to do these majors. You got to do these majors differently than we do them now. I mean, you can't be giving, uh, you can't be holding back British opens from Ben Hogan and, and those guys, because they never played in those, in that tournament. I mean, Hogan went over right. once. And he won, he won Wanger, it that year. And, he but, won, right? and that's the crazy thing about this, Peter is 1953. He wins the masters. He wins the U S open and he wins the open championship. He couldn't, it was actually physically impossible to play in the PGA, let alone win it, right? It was impossible because the end of the PGA overlapped with the beginning of the Open Championship, the British Open. So you couldn't be in two places on opposite sides of the world at the same time. So this whole thing about majors and being able to win all four in one year was virtually impossible. When did the term major come around? I, you know, the, 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 the popular theory is, I mean, we just, just to digress for a second, like Bobby Jones won four majors, but then back then the majors were the U S open, the British open, the U S amateur and the British. Right. Amateur. Those were, those were the four major tournaments. The Masters had yet to, um, you know, had, had, had yet to be born, and the PGA was a tournament that was open only to professionals. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That's how they determined the majors back then. I don't know why the PGA wasn't a major, and the British Amateur was, for instance. I don't understand that. But that's when Bobby Jones won the Grand Slam in 1930. Those were the tournaments that he won, and then. I, you know, the, the real the popular belief is that it, it, it's a, the, the current four tournament major uh, thing came into being in 1960 when Palmer won the Masters and then he followed that up with a win at the U.S. Open 
and they kind of created this thing. He and uh, a, a sports writer from Pittsburgh and Mark McCormick, his kind of guru, you know, agent, uh, said, well, let's, you know, we go, we're in the British Open. That's, you know, that, that's three. And then PGA would be four. We were a Grand Slam. Um, not many people talked about the Grand Slam until then. And since then, of course, it's that sort of been chiseled into our golf brains. But back when those guys played, they considered the Western Open to be. Mm-hmm. If, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they even used the term major back then, but they they met the Western Open was considered to be a major tournament. The North and South was considered to be a major tournament. The British Open was not considered to be a major tournament because nobody went to it because it took, you'd have to take a boat over and you'd have to take a mm-hmm. boat back and mm-hmm. you have to qualify. And so you're losing three weeks of income for, you know, not a lot of money and, and why bother? Um, so the, it's, it, it's not fair to those guys to hold them up to the same major qualifications that we're holding the guys up to now because really the British Open was was you know it, it might have been a bucket list thing but it was not a regular thing and as you noted earlier at times it even conflicted with the PGA schedule right there wasn't any coordination mm-hmm. that at that point between the PGA and the RNA in terms of like well, let's make sure the British Open has played in a week where there are no PGA tournaments so you know because you couldn't do it in a week back then you, just, you had to get over and you had to get back mm-hmm. and um, and you had to qualify mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. then. So it, it was not a it was it was, you know, it was a non-starter for a lot of guys. Um, and Bobby Jones went over there mostly when the Walker Cup was played so that the USGA would would pay his mm-hmm. pay. He's not he's no mm-hmm. dummy. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter, as I went through all these different points in your book you know, is as far as how a U.S. Open is played um, and the differences, if there were differences between a U.S. Open and the Hail America Open. Oh, yes, um, for sure. You know, your book, The Open Question, you know, covers some of that. What about the format of the Hail versus the U.S. Open? Was there a difference? Tell us about the difference in format and and how it was played. There was a, there were a number of differences. Um, the first being that it was a four day tournament and not a three day tournament. The USGA back then uh, held the Open in three days with thirty six holes on Saturday, and that was kind of their Darwinian you know test to the U.S. Open. You know, <laughs> survival. You know, you, if you can do this, you know, you can win it, and you know, you can be a tough guy and all that stuff. And then, of course, if it was tied, they, you know, early on, they'd have like these 36 hole playoffs after it was tied. I mean, it was ridiculous. But the Hail America was conducted in over four days as a regular PGA tournament is today. Um, so that was a difference. Uh, there was no cut, uh, which was a difference. Uh, I don't think that's a big deal, but. Um, what they wanted to do was they wanted to raise as much money as they could, which is why they went to four days because you'd have four, four separate gates. So you'd raise more money if you had four gates rather than three gates. And if you happen to have someone like Bobby Jones, uh, who wasn't in contention, but was still playing, he would be a draw who might not have made the cut. He would still be playing on the weekend. And that was great. And as a matter of fact, Jones played with Hogan both Saturday and Sunday, even though they were nowhere near each other uh, in the, um, you know, on the score list. Uh, Hogan was up near the lead and Jones was not, but they played together and that, you know, that's going to get people to watch it and people to pay to come and so forth and so on. So those were the two major differences in terms of format. Um, They had some things, uh, long driving contests and putting contests and stuff like that an aside, but you know, that I don't think that was a major distraction to the tournament. I mean, the tournament actually, when you look at it now and, and you see how it was played and the, the cream rose to the top at, at the end of the day. And uh, I think I point out in the book that uh, 
when you mentioned the third round, how, how tough mm-hmm. it was, I mean, I think there were more rounds in the 80s that day than there were in the 60s. And by the end of four rounds, you had fewer players under par than were under par at Aaron Hills or at Pebble mm-hmm. Beach a couple mm-hmm. of years ago when Gary Woodland won. So, you know, eventually the good players got to the where the good players do. The bad players ended up where they did, and and um, it 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 produced a, a worthy champion. And and that's obviously an issue because if you know if Jim Ternessa had won it, or even Jimmy Demerit, I don't know if there'd be a groundswell to give Hogan a fifth. Well, Hogan, yeah, you know? I I I have it, a question lined up for that, and but before I get to that question. You sort of touched upon this. Of course, your book, The Open Question, was or should the Hell America National Open be considered a major because it took the place of the U.S. Open that year, 1942. And without a doubt, right. Moore certainly played easier than just about any U.S. Open course, especially up to that point in time. But since yep. then... And again, you sort of alluded to this. There have been a few U.S. Opens where scoring went pretty darn low. So should that be factored in? Why or why not? Well, I, I think it should. I mean, and not only is it the scoring, is that you, you have, you've had U.S. Opens at courses where, um, you know, to be charitable, the, the conditions were not great. I mean, the, the, the gold standard for that is Hazeltine in 1970. Uh, it was a basic cow pasture and the players hated mm-hmm. it and, and bitched about it and said all kinds of nasty things about it. Um, but they held the tournament there and Tony Jacklin won it and no one's disputing him his championship, but the, the course itself was just absolutely hammered by the, by the pros. And um, I remember watching just a few years ago uh, when Jordan Spieth won at uh, Chambers Bay I looked at that course and, and, you know, the guys couldn't putt on the greens for one thing. They were like crazy bad. And I always look at these, when I watch a U.S. Open, I think, God, I'd love to play that course sometime. I never had that feeling about Chambers Bay. <laughs> it just, it, 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 it did nothing for me, but I, but I, there was a lot of criticism about the greens. So the idea that the conditions weren't great and it wasn't set up, those, those are all valid, but, not every year do they play at, you know, Oakmont or Oakland Hills or wherever. Uh, so um, there have been times when the, when the, uh, when the courses have not been so great and the scoring, the scoring was ridiculously low for the time. But uh, as I note in the book, you know, Hogan's 62 would still stand, but I think his other, his 271, I think was eclipsed by McElroy. Um at congressional, so I mean, I I just think there's the scoring part of it. I is I I don't think that's an issue. They they play everybody plays the same course, and you know you you see what happens at the end of four rounds. Yep, absolutely. It's like uh, you know, in baseball, yeah. Well, look, you haven't played anybody. You play who's on the schedule, and ultimately every team comes around and plays the same schedule, right? And these players right. all played the same golf course, and it just turns out that Ben Hogan won it. So what about the players themselves years later, or even at that time, what did they have to say about it being or not being a major? What did they think? I don't I don't think very few few of them, you know, considered the uh, Pale America to be a de facto substitute for the u.s open um that came along a little bit later and i think hogan had a had a part in doing that uh but at the time it was the newspaper writers at the time were calling it a major and hogan's first you know national triumph and stuff like that so there was some of that but i don't think anybody really considered it a de facto uh, U.S. Open. What happened was that I think Hogan, and, and from his, and from uh, you know his supporters, 
in the media and outside the media. I mean, he, you know, he talked about getting the medal from the USGA right. president okay. after he won it, right. and, and and it looked like <laughs> it looked like the other four that he would eventually win wasn't identical, but it was pretty close. Um, so I and I think that just one thing led to another, and if people look back on the tournament and they see the USGA's fingerprints are all over it. One thing we didn't mention was that they also, uh, on the scene, ruled Sam Bird's clubs to be non-conforming. Now, that wouldn't have happened at the Portland Open or at the you know Tallahassee Open or even at the PGA, but it happened here because the USGA was running the tournament. So Sam Bird had to go out and, and you know, borrow a set of clubs from one of the members and play. Uh, and he played pretty well because he was a good golfer. But uh, that just shows that the USGA was was involved in this tournament. Yeah. yeah. Like they would be in a U.S. Open. So um, I think you can make a case either way. My feeling when people ask me about this is that the only decision that matters is the decision of the USGA. And they have determined that it's not going to be recognizes the u.s open so we have to live with that but i also say well hogan hogan thought it was and you know i'm at the end of the day that's a pretty strong affirmation in my mind i mean if he thought it should have counted i mean i think you have to give weight to that right, too. especially later in life he considered it a major yes. so let's yes. you, you you so touch a little bit more upon the medal that he was given for winning and what Joe Day, the USGA president, had to say about it being a major. He, well, he, he was given a, the, the, the medal. They had, they had cast the medal already for the 42 Open, you know, thinking that they would give it to the 42 Open champion at Interlochen. And, and when that didn't happen, they kept the medal, but they just uh, changed the writing on the back of the medal to say that it was the Hail America, not a U.S. Open. Um, but if you look at the front of it, it's pretty much the same as the other ones that Hogan would eventually win. It's not identical, but it's, you have to be pretty sharp-eyed to pick out the difference. Uh, so when he was always asked about it, and this is funny when, when you go, when you read about Hogan and how he was asked about this, the medals were a huge part of it for him. He would always say, well, I've got five medals. It looks the same. So that tells me I've won five U.S. Open. And he he was also a little bit bitter that the 42 Masters winner was acknowledged as a major champion. He lost in a playoff that year to Byron Nelson, so he was doubly bitter <laughs> about that. He was uh, in the PGA Championship. Sam Steed was recognized that year as well. So why not the U.S. Open? Um, that's what he's thinking. I mean, I won a tournament. It was staged like a U.S. Open. It was qualifying rounds, second-round qualifying rounds. They ran it like a U.S. Open, but it's not a U.S. Open. So, And, and what about Joe Day? Well, Joe Day. Joe Day, um, I'm sorry. I think that's how we pronounce it. It might be Day, but I think it's Day. He... He is, you know, obviously he's not around anymore, but he was uh, quoted many times as saying he would have loved to have given this championship to Ben Hogan, but he just didn't think that it merited a U.S. Open. And it, he went back to the course. He said the course was just not U.S. Open standard. We didn't have a chance to get it toughened up. Uh, you know, the U.S. Open is famous for what? Fast greens, uh, slim fairways and heavy rough. And Richmond didn't really have Richmore. Richmore did not really have any of those. So he he fall back he falls back on the well the course wasn't in U.S. Open shape and we so I I can't mm. we can't do it. Um, but you know that's one of the arguments I just we just went over with you know Hazeltine and Aaron Hills and uh, um, Chambers Bay that. You know, the courses are not always in great shape for the U.S. Mm -hmm. Open. And um, this one, you know, Richmond gets a bad rap. I mean, they stepped up at a time when 
nobody else did. And they said, we'll do it. We'll run it. We'll, and they, they staged a good tournament. There was the players themselves uh, had no complaints about the course and the course conditions, uh, you know, maybe because they played well, but there, there weren't any complaints about the course. Well, sports forgotten heroes is a podcast about, you know, forgotten teams, forgotten players, uh, guys who played second fiddle, who probably had, you know, they were overshadowed by Babe Ruth and Jim Brown, and but still had a Hall of Fame career. They weren't as flamboyant. Maybe their name wasn't in the news as much. And this tournament sort of qualifies in that kind of light. And here's where the argument of is it a major or is it not a major gets really foggy for me. Obviously, I have to do a lot of research to prepare for my podcast. (laughs) And gosh darn it, Pete, it is not easy to find a whole lot of information about the Hail America National Open. It isn't even easy to find a a leaderboard for this tournament. Why? Why is the USGA so secretive about the Hail America? It's almost as if it's hiding something. Well, it's really been you know, erased from their archives. I mean, if you go visit their museum in Far Hills, New Jersey, and they list the open winners, they're, the years 42, 43, 44, and 45 are blank. There's nothing there. They do have a display on the Hail America tournament there, but it's not in any way uh, suggesting that it was the U.S. Open. It's more to uh, commemorate their uh, support of the war effort uh, in the forties. So I just don't think that the USGA ever considered it to be anything more than just a, a substitute for the U S open, not, not a, you know, a replacement or whatever. And, um, but I don't, on the second hand, I don't know why they don't have any kind of, um, references to it in their you know record books as as you know as a tournament that they sponsored mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh and ran in 1942 uh it i think it would help if they just kind of acknowledged that and said yeah well we did have this tournament that we ran in 1942 we don't think it's a u.s open but here's what happened and let you know and then let the let the reader decide but which is what I try to do. But and here here's the other here's the uh, another part that makes it really foggy for me is when we talk about the US Open we talk about it being our national open and what's this called the Hail America National Open. National so open. why you know yep. they should have changed the name at least. Right. No, I I mean I I I think they 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 should have something on it um in every kind of U.S. Open publication. They should note that this tournament was held, and and they could they could they could spin it in in a positive way in terms of how much money they raised for the war effort and what they did to support the war effort. And Ben Hogan won, but we didn't we don't consider it a U.S. Open because you know the course wasn't ready and you know blah blah blah. But um, it, it it is kind of amazing because I, I I did I mean the people that are in the U.S. GA library and the archivists there, they know all about the tournament and they were very mm-hmm. helpful to me and they did nothing to stand in my way because they knew what I was writing and I was sort of challenging mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. them to say like, why aren't you considering this U S open? Here are the reasons why you didn't, Well, I'm going to say those reasons don't hold up anymore, but you know, in the end of the day, they're the ones that make the decision. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, it, what you and I think and what anybody else thinks really doesn't matter. It's just what they think. And they are, you know, they're not going to change their mind on that. Well, look, I mean, Hogan won it. He got the medal. He considers it a major. He says it's a fifth U.S. Open. But here is the argument against it. Had a guy like Otis Chrisman, a journeyman pro who actually <laughs> contended, yeah 
won this tournament, had anyone besides Hogan won this tournament, would we be having this conversation? Can that play a factor would, into all of this? We would not. We would not. <laughs> you, would, you would not have my number, and I would not be talking to you. No. That is absolutely true. And I think this this only happened after the fact, and I think Hogan was – he was responsible in a lot of ways for make for bringing this to light by talking about when he when he uh, was playing in I think it was Oakmont one of the opens after he'd won a couple they they asked him you know something and he said well I'm shooting for my fourth anyway it's really shooting for his third um, and and then well what are you talking about well you know I won this tournament 42 blah 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 and I think that was what really got it going and then it was picked up by the media. Um, and, uh, and then people started to say, well, wait a minute, let's look at this tournament. What is, what's he talking about? Why does he think this should be, should count as a U.S. Open? And then they, they did basically what I did. They went back and looked at the tournament and said, well, wait a minute, you know, the USGA ran it like a U.S. Open. They, you know, they invited all the good players. It was a, you know, it wasn't a great U.S. Open venue, but it was a, you, you know, it was a legitimate tournament and, yeah, there were a few changes, but the U.S. Open has changed over the years. It, it has always, it's morphed into now a four-day tournament. It wasn't a four-day tournament in 1962. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I went to the 1963 U.S. Open playoff, and it was just, the only reason I could go was it was on a Sunday because mm-hmm. the 36-hole final on Saturday ended in the tie. Mm-hmm. So it's changed over the years in terms of uh you know, rounds and stuff like that. So, and playoffs. Now it's a four-hole playoff. It used to be eighteen holes. It used to be thirty-six holes. So it, it's changed a lot. And so, I think that's what happened was that he said, "Well, wait a minute. You know, this is I won this tournament in nineteen forty-two. Go back and take a look at it. I think it should count as a U.S. Open." And that's what people did. Well, Peter, your book, The Open Question, Ben Hogan and Golf's Most Enduring Controversy, is certainly a a great, great uh, account of a tournament that will, I guess, live in infamy and leaves everyone uh, to guess on their own. Should it or should it not be a major? I really enjoyed reading the book. I've really enjoyed talking to you before about Lloyd Mangrum, today about the open question. And I want to thank you so much for spending some time with me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Well, it has been my pleasure because I, I love talking about this this subject. And I just as I said earlier, I had a blast doing this book because there was so much stuff that I learned and uh going back and look at, and it was, it was a, it had to be a fun time to be a golf pro. Sure. Back then, uh, if you didn't care about money. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Again, Peter, thank you so much for joining me on sports forgotten heroes. You're very welcome. Morgan. Thank you. Morgan. Thank you for having me. You got it. How do you answer the question? Should Ben Hogan be credited with a fifth U.S. Open championship? There are several questions like this throughout sports and sports history. I don't know if you can answer it. It's what makes sports so great. The debates, barroom discussions, books, articles, blogs, and podcasts like this kind of stuff to ponder. My head scratcher again is this. If you're going to put on a tournament and you change the name and venue, does that disqualify it from what it was originally intended to be? I guess it's a question for debate and one that we will be asking for years and years to come. In the meantime, thank you again to my guest, Peter May, for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes to talk about the Hail America National Open and the mysteries surrounding it. Peter sure knows his stuff, and I thought we had a great conversation about the Hail America National Open. 
Of course, the question remains, should Ben Hogan be credited with five U.S. Open championships? Guess that's a question only the USGA will ever be able to answer. Hey, thanks to all of you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.